This is Maven America. You are so welcome to the show and I'm really glad that you found us. This podcast is about the American immigrant experience, where I find out what happens when you leave your life behind to move far away and start a new one. These are immigration stories told by the people who've lived them. The notion that this designates a person as illegal in him or herself does not follow uh, from the act that they have committed. Uh, it does not make semantic sense because what they are in the end being called illegal for is a discrete act. And to say that that act encompasses an immigrant's entire identity is not only deeply, deeply ethically flawed, um, it's also a misrepresentation of what it means to have an immigrant identity. That's Donnell, today's guest, and he's going to take us all back to school. Princeton, to be exact, and we don't even have to pay. He is brilliant, he's funny, and he's undocumented. But before I introduce you guys properly, let's hear from dear old Mona Chalabi, data editor for The Guardian US. Mona has spent all weekend alone in her tiny little apartment, crunching the numbers for us. So let's hear them. Dada, please. Dada, please. Mona, thank you for coming in. You're welcome. I have a series of questions for you, as always. What I want to do first is establish some rapport between us, Mona. (laughs) What kind of things are you into? I like urban wildlife, like squirrels. Um, I am afraid of the raccoons in my neighbourhood. There aren't raccoons in your neighbourhood. In my old neighbourhood of East Harlem, there was hundreds of them. There aren't. All right, Snow White. I guess the most obvious first question is, like, how many undocumented people are there living in the US? So the number that I found comes from the Department of Homeland Security. It comes from January 2012. And they estimate that there's about 11.4 million unauthorised immigrants. The problem with numbers like this, though, um, is that any anything which is kind of like outside of the law, if you like. So I could ask questions like, how many prostitutes are there in America? How many people in America do cocaine? And the truth mm-hmm. is that with anything that isn't legal, it's very, very difficult to know. Like, How they many can't... prostitutes do cocaine? <laughs> exactly. Mm-hmm. So obviously the Department of Homeland Security have their techniques for estimating this stuff, but it's still an estimate. Yes, yeah. So where are mainly, like, where do people come from that don't have papers? So the simple answer is that most come from Mexico, 59% in total, Mm -hmm. and that's in 2012. Next on the list is El Salvador, with 6% of all unauthorised immigrants. Uh, Then we have Guatemala, with 5%, Honduras, Philippines, India, Korea, China, Ecuador, all the way down to Vietnam, uh, where people make up 1% of all unauthorised immigrants. Um, We had an unauthorised immigrant on our show for the holiday special, who was an Irishman, actually. Oh, wow. From very close to where I live. And we're going to talk about the reasons for this happening, but uh, you're our stat person. Uh, You know what I'm interested in, because it pertains to our guests? Mm -hmm. Like, what about the children of unauthorised immigrants? So I'm going to throw out a lot of numbers here, but I'll provide a bit of context. So about 3.9 million children between the ages of kindergarten and 12th grade in the US, and this is public and private schools, Mm -hmm. and this is for 2014, were the children of unauthorised immigrants. So to give you context on that, that means that in 2014... About 7% of all school-aged children were the children of unauthorised immigrants. That's a lot, right? Yeah, it's incredible. Nine million people live in mixed-status families, which, again, is incredible. Just, again, to give you some context here, the US population is about 324 million people. And nine million people live in mixed-status families. Yeah, 3% of the total population. Wow. Yeah, that's a lot. That's a lot. 
Yeah. What about this idea that undocumented immigrants mm. are uh, some a drain on the economy? So I found a report from the Institute on Taxation and Economic Policy, and they looked at the contribution that these... Was this th- just like your Friday night reading? <laughs> <laughs> it really was. Actually, I was literally doing this on oh, Friday night. Yeah. Thank you, Mona. Sorry. What did, they, <laughs> what did you find? They found that undocumented immigrants nationwide pay on average 8% of their incomes in state and local taxes. Um But to give you some perspective, the top 1% of taxpayers, the wealthiest individuals in America, Mm -hmm. pay just 5.4%. Oh, they get more breaks? I don't really know why that is, to be honest with you. Wow. I assume that's just because, isn't there like a minimum threshold of some taxes that you have to pay for like, to your state and stuff? And if you earn less money, that makes up a larger share of your income, perhaps? I mean, I hate to just be like so obvious, but literally Donald Trump didn't pay taxes. Yeah, no, it's true. <laughs> like, oh, Mona, thank you. Thanks, Maeve. That was Mona Chalaby. You can find her amazing charts and graphics on Instagram and Twitter at Mona Chalaby, and she's extremely active on Tinder. Now, on with the show. I want you to meet today's guest. My name is Danelle Padija Peralta. I was born in Santo Domingo, Dominican Republic. Danelle was four years old when he came to the US with his parents. His mom had a high-risk pregnancy and she was advised to seek medical care here. We're going to get more into his childhood later on. Suffice to say, in the following years, his dad returned to the Dominican Republic, leaving Danelle, his mom and his little brother in New York City... Hopping around all over the place, uh, we moved from uh, Washington Heights uh, to the Bronx to Corona mm. to Jackson Heights uh, mm. with a little detour in Astoria and then uh, another place in Elmhurst and then entered the shelter system. So from the Emergency Relocation Center for Homeless Families in the South Bronx, where is he now? Today, I teach ancient history and classics at Princeton University uh, and specialize in the history of the Roman world. Rome contained wonders of architecture and engineering. There were aqueducts. Wait a second, what? (laughs) I'm acutely conscious of how uh, singular in some respects my trajectory uh, has been. (laughs) I am acutely conscious of how singular in some respects my trajectory has been. I am getting a tattoo of that phrase. I visited Donnell at his office in Princeton. I took the train from Penn Station and got a cab when I reached New Jersey. Where you want to be? The, the oh, is this the campus? Oh, campus? This is the campus? Oh, no, I passed campus. Oh, oh sorry. The campus is imposing but beautiful. It's how you'd expect a private Ivy League research university to look. Ivory towers rising up in gothic clusters and the tree-lined paths blazing like sunsets in the fall. It's where Donnell teaches every day now, and it's also the place where things came to a head for him in his senior year, when he landed an amazing opportunity. So when I was a senior in college, uh, I was presented at Princeton with uh, the Sachs Scholarship, which funded two years of study uh, at Oxford. Well, yeah, it's certainly an honor because uh, you have the best and brightest among Princeton's graduating class who are competing for it, and that's a very competitive group. That's David Lovner, who oversaw the scholarship's administration when Donnell won the sacks. David has white hair, but he looks really young. I don't know how people do that. 
But I don't know how people get the sacks either. It's super prestigious. We're talking Supreme Court Justice Elena Kagan and Anne-Marie Slaughter. It funds study at Oxford University in England, and it selects for... Extraordinary uh, intellect, but perhaps most distinctive commitment to serving the public good. Danell still remembers hearing the news. That morning, I was walking through the snow, and then uh, once I got this call, and they told me that I had won. I was really incredulous. <laughs> so I, I, initially, I was uh, struck dumb, and I could not stop saying thank you. I mean, it was just this profusion of thank yous spilling out of my mouth. They must have thought me to be this complete weirdo who had been seized with some crippling pathological speech deficit that rendered him only capable of saying thank you. But even as Danelle felt extraordinarily lucky... Already encroaching on my um, awareness of the possibilities um, made available by the scholarship was the anxiety concerning my immigration status. Because, you see, Danelle had been living with this secret, and it was a big one. Now, yes, now I had to explain it. Uh, just what's at stake, uh, being undocumented and not having access uh, to any path to legalization, a major, major obstacle. Immediately following his selection, I recall distinctly, we met at a wonderful restaurant off of Nassau Street, and we had a beer. David Lovner again, to whom Donnell began to lay out his life story. Culminating in explaining his, his predicament, specifically that if he left the U.S., he'd be banned from re-entering for 10 years. And I think I nearly dropped my mug. I'd drop my mug too. It's shocking. Unless, of course, you're one of the millions of people who live this reality every day. Here was this tremendous scholar of antiquity. The idea that he wouldn't be able to return. I knew he was very close to his mother and brother tribal loyalty to the New York Yankees. As Donnell spoke, David began to understand what so many born American citizens never do, that a person can sort of be an undocumented American and be unable to leave, but also unable to stay and live a regular life. On the one hand, it was a horrifying prospect that I was going to be complicit in sending him into exile. On the other hand, it was thrilling because he was thrilled at the prospect. And he explained, remarkably, without any bitterness, that he had no prospects in the U.S. because he could not legally work in the U.S. I decided, you know, there's no point in staying if I will be effectively confined to no prospect of upward mobility, of pursuing Mm -hmm. my education. uh, And if I have to go abroad to pursue my education... That's what I have to do. Really, it emerged in beginning in that meeting and in all my subsequent interactions with Danell. What a remarkable person he is, aside from his wonderful intellect. His optimism, he's just one of the sunniest people, despite all the travails of his life and even at really dark times in the life of his family. Danell accepted the scholarship, and that thrust him into the spotlight, and his singular trajectory attracted a whole lot of craziness that reached its peak in his coming out as undocumented, on the front page of the Wall Street Journal, no less. So it was a huge colour photograph 
and it was taken on, it was Dan L. taken on campus. The cherry blossoms uh, had just come out. So it is this riot of pink and green and the beautiful Gothic buildings behind. So the gorgeous Princeton campus. And here is this, you know, beaming young black man. But with all of that attention came the chilling moment Danelle had always feared. ICE, uh, Immigration Customs Enforcement, opened the file on me the very day I graduated from Princeton. Uh, so, what? Uh, the day that you graduated from Princeton, is that the same day that you gave the speech in Latin? Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. My, my ICE file was opened June 6, 2006. Danelle had been nominated as the salutatorian to deliver the Latin speech at commencement. I know, it's like, come on, immigrants, you've got to speak English in public, okay? Don't you want to fit in? Really, though, ICE was on to Danelle. And before we get into what came next for him, I needed to figure something out. Like, basically, how did this happen? One of the things I discovered uh, as I made my way through college, and and that has been true ever since, uh, is that it is exceedingly difficult to explain to people just what exactly goes on, right? Uh, Because people, before long, uh, start tuning out when one begins to say, you know, oh, and then I had to apply for this visa, or then I had to apply, I was under this category, or this law says that I can't adjust status, whatever the hell that means, because of X, Y, and Z. I would argue that this is actually one of the most effective uh, consequences of the incredible control that the U.S. immigration bureaucracy exerts over the marginalized, uh, because it is Just so complicated. The obfuscation. Right, that other people tend to assume, well, th- this must be straightforward. Like, why didn't you figure this out early? I mean, I've been asked this all for many, many years. Why, why didn't <laughs> you and your parents resolve this? I called up our context king for today. Jose Antonio Vargas is the founder of Define American. He's a journalist, filmmaker, and immigrants' rights activist. He looks a lot like a young Elvis Presley, but that's not important. I asked Jose what Donnell's options were through the years. The DREAM Act uh, was a bipartisan, ooh, listen to that, bipartisan bill that was introduced in Congress in 2001. And it was a bill that would have given legal status to young people who were brought to the country illegally. The hearing was actually scheduled for September 12th, 2001, which is, of course, the day after 9-11. As you can imagine, the hearing never happened. Uh, And to this day, there is no Dream Act. President Obama signed an executive order to grant some of these kids legal status. That's the Deferred Action for Childhood Arrival. But it happened too late for Donnell. Back now to our context king, Jose Antonio Vargas. He too is undocumented. Now, a person's immigration status is so important and so personal. And I hate when people with legal status take this lofty approach to demanding answers, you know. So I made a robot do my dirty work. I am a robot and I have some pretty provocative questions for you. First up, why can't you get in line like everybody else? Uh, can you show me where the line is? Like, I don't know where the line is. Is it like in the corner of 14th and 6th next to the Starbucks? Because if it is, that's where I'll go. But, yo, there's no line. Do undocumented immigrants hurt the case for documented immigrants? Well, a lot of the, undo- a lot of the documented immigrants you're talking about are my own relatives. So I'm going to go, I guess I'll go ask them about that. Like, 
This is not like some sort of a segregated, oh, the documented on one side and the undocumented on the other side. Actually, usually we're in the same family. I feel bad saying this, but are undocumented immigrants violent and dangerous? Is working violent and dangerous? Because that's kind of what we do. <laughs> have you heard of like an undocumented immigrant who doesn't have a job? It's kind of really interesting. Like most undocumented immigrants are too busy working to be violent. I should have thought about this more. Don't undocumented immigrants send all their money home? Um, you should talk to American Express, Bank of America, Target, Walmart. Where was I last night? Oh, I actually really, really love the Cheesecake Factory. Um, I'm not sure the Cheesecake Factory could survive that undocumented people eating there all the time. Jose Antonio Vargas, you are very handsome. You look like a young Elvis Presley. Did anyone ever tell you that? <laughs> you know, I actually can't marry a robot and get a green card, but that is so cute. Thank you. For a long time, Donnell didn't even realize he was undocumented. He was just a child. When he was seven, his parents separated, his dad went back to the Dominican Republic and his single working mother struggled to pay their rent on her own. She managed to feed everybody using some money that she made as a cleaner supplemented by the food stamps that only Donnell's brother qualified for because he was a US citizen. She tried everything to keep a roof over their heads. But at the end of my third grade school year, we were evicted from our apartment uh, mm -hmm. in Jackson Heights. Um, and after staying in a basement uh, for two weeks, we uh, left the basement uh, after it flooded uh, and then entered the shelter system. The homeless shelters the little family stayed in, they were rough. Donnell and his five-year-old brother had to shower in the communal men's bathroom. The floor so filthy they wore their sneakers. Their mom so scared that she waited outside the door, having told them to scream loudly if anyone came near them. The shelter system for both uh, for my mom and, and for my younger brother and me uh, was uh, a very traumatic experience. Even there, though, Danelle recalls the bright side. But it did come with some unintended uh, beneficial consequences. The first was that the first shelter in which we were enrolled uh, as, as bed holders uh, happened to have a library. Uh, and this was a great library. I spent a great deal of time reading in this library, uh, and I discovered all these books, um, including one on ancient Greece and Rome. Talk about foreshadowing. And while Donnell was nerding out in the shelter library, one of the volunteers, a man called Jeff, noticed him. My oldest uh, and in some respects most influential mentor, uh, the uh, photographer and, and arts instructor uh, who had spotted me one afternoon while my family was living in the shelter system uh, and taken an interest in me. Um, Donnell was reading an autobiography of Napoleon at the time. And Jeff told Donnell's mom about this top private school with a scholarship that he thought Donnell would be perfect for Donnell got in and was off to a flying academic start, even as he was gradually becoming aware of the fact that he was undocumented and what that meant. I began to piece things together as I translated uh, for my mom when we were in the New York City um, public assistance offices. I realized when my grandfather died, when I, I was 12, um, and my mom told me that we couldn't head back to the Dominican Republic because we would not have a way to return. Uh, and these were these moments where, little by little, I began to amass the knowledge of myself as undocumented. For an academically gifted kid, college seems like a natural step to take. But for Danelle, it was never a given. 
and then it really hit home when I was applying to college. Um, hmm. I, I was uh, a high school junior, and I uh, had done some research on the side to try to figure out what it would mean uh, for me to tell a college that I would, did not have papeles. Hmm. Um, so all of that was on my mind. Uh, and as I began to think seriously about appro- uh, applying to colleges, I, I could not shake off this anxiety that I, I would be unsuccessful. And then what would be my options, right? I should say that you were a brilliant student, right? Well, I don't know about brilliant. <laughs> I, I did well. Uh, I'll leave it at okay, that. Okay, well, uh, I mean, <laughs> like, I don't know if there's like a place for modesty here because we are sitting in your office in Princeton. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I will play the modesty card <laughs> no matter what. Um, okay, but uh, you, I mean, your teachers had high hopes for right, you. Right, and right. most kids thinking about applying to college they're worried about another aspect of it. Like, you know, will I get the grades? Like, will I get the financial aid? But you you were worried about, could, I, could you even get there? Yeah, I had begun to internalize the idea that this would be, in some sense, a, a burden that I would have to carry uh, as long as I resided in the States. My mom and I watched the news every night, uh, and uh, one of the developments that frightened us in the late 90s and onwards uh, was the slow but steady uptick uh, in immigration raids uh, and deportations. Even under this cloud of fear, the teenage Donnell continued to excel and he did get to join the Princeton class of 2006. And getting back to where we started, when everything was blowing up around him, his old private school, his Princeton professors and his mentors rallied behind him to try and get his status legalised. Donnell fought and lost and fought and... What? You didn't think I was going to give away the ending, did you? So, senior year. Donnell's secret is out. He's faced with being banned from the US for a decade and he's launched into this fight to change his status. Right, we could talk about that for hours. That's David Lovner again, the administrator of the SAC scholarship Donnell won that launched him into all of that publicity around his undocumented status. So I learned quickly there was no obvious legal route to fix his problem, but there were time-honored political routes, things called private bills, where Congress could fix an individual's immigration status. And apparently that always used to be done routinely prior to immigration having become such a hot-button and polarizing issue in America. Also, when congressmen routinely cooperated across the aisle. But at that time, it turned out there really was no easy way out, or in Donnell's case, back in, unless he was granted a retroactive change of status. Uh, And what that simply means is that I would file an application outlining why I couldn't have applied to change status, to be in legal status as a kid, because I was a kid. I didn't know what was going on. Basically, Donnell had to to make make a case for uh, why my status ought to be adjusted before I exited the United States, imploring um, the uh, Immigration Service uh, to do what it needed to do in order to provide me with status. I reached out to everyone who had ever known me, pretty much. I mean, I reached out to all my teachers. I reached out to all my old mentors. Um, uh, and I, through them, also reached out to several politicians uh, to see if they might be willing all to write letters of support on my behalf or attesting to my uh, good standing as a member of my different communities. You know, it's interesting. To get my US visa, I also needed to collect letters from people. I had to demonstrate that I had a good career in Ireland and show press clippings, but the letters were crucial for my O-1 visa, known informally as an artist visa. 
That's beautiful. I've never met a real artist before. That's the fabulous Jean Belcher, the star of the best cartoon on TV, Bob's Burgers. Well, I guess technically it was Eugene Merman who plays Jean, who wrote me a letter of recommendation to the US government, but you get the idea. I had some pretty impressive cartoons pushing my application forward. Who vouched for Donnell? Yeah, the people who wrote their support included Senator Paul Starbanes. Senator Chuck Schumer, Charlie Rangel, Spencer Baucus. Ted Kennedy. Huh, well, I also got a letter from Kristen Schaal, who plays Louise in Bob's Burgers. Listen, I'm pushing you because you've got talent, and I'm going to take care of you. Oh, you better believe it. But first, got to make some money for Mommy. Thank you, Louise. I mean, Kristen. And as for Danelle... You're most notably... Bill Clinton, who was uh, the class day speaker, who met Danelle at that time. He actually called President George W. Bush on Danelle's behalf. But even after all of that... Their efforts and the efforts of so many people at Princeton to help me adjust status uh, did not result at the time in any material shift in my status. Donnell had presidents on presidents. He was an American in every way but on paper, while this white lady from Europe who tells jokes for a living just got her three-year visa and sailed right on in. Mother, this isn't happening, right? Has the world gone crazy? I mean, if anything, uh, you know, I, I have throughout this process felt a keen sense of gratitude to those who have taken the time mm. and energy to, to support me. I have also, though, felt uh, an incredible sense of frustration at how this system is designed to uh, bludgeon people uh, into silence and effacement by requiring of them so much. And I am in a position where uh, I can at least put forward some of the time uh, and the money, mm. uh, but... There are so many millions who are not in that position at all. For many years, Danelle's own mother was among those millions. My mom eventually, after separating from uh, my dad, mm-hmm. who left and returned to the Dominican Republic, remarried. Uh, and um, she remarried her longtime boyfriend. When you marry a U.S. citizen, you get a green card, which is a step toward becoming a naturalized citizen yourself. There's a process, of course, and that includes an interview with an immigration official, which Danelle's mother was dreading. What my mom really was upset about was the prospect that she might be asked some really intrusive, intimate questions. Mm-hmm. Uh, because, I mean, we knew people who had been asked questions about uh, about sex. about, And my mom was not, not about this life at <laughs> all. Uh, so what she did was she brought a photo album that had every single photo of her and my stepdad Carlos from basically 1997 until 2013. Uh, and uh, she began at the interview to go through each of these photos, one by oh one God. by one. And I think the the examiner must have been so exasperated by the possibility of having uh, the, uh, my mom uh, work her way through all of these photos. It's such a genius move, using the tactics of too much information actually against those who seek it. This is exactly what she did. And, and so eventually wow. this interview ended, and he was like, obviously, <laughs> this couple is legit. Anything to make it stop. Back in the UK, Donnell was homesick and applied for a visitor's visa to America. In his memoir, a really great read by the way, it's called Undocumented, Donnell recalls this time. He took a bus to the US Embassy in London, he placed his thumb on the biometric scanner and was told that he would not get the visa, that he was banned. 
Now he was just one of the millions knocking on the door of America and being denied admission. Donnell eventually did get back into the US on a temporary work visa. His thesis supervisor at Princeton had tons of material she needed help researching for a book on late Republic Rome, and Donnell was the perfect candidate for the job. In her opinion and the opinion of uh, the department, uh, I had a number of skills that made me well suited uh, mm-hmm. to uh, undertaking this kind of, of research project. So I knew Roman history, uh, but I also uh, knew Roman inscriptions really well. Here's the thing. America likes to pride itself on the dream of meritocracy, that anyone can come here and make it because this country rewards hard work and talent. In Donnell's case, his life resembles so much of that dream. No wonder he was on the front page of the Wall Street Journal. He's like the poster boy of the American dream. But that dream is just that. It's a dream with many powerful people working to keep it that way. Indeed, the person responsible for one of the more defamatory comments about Dominicans Mm -hmm. uh, to be uttered uh, in the past 10, 15 years is now our new attorney general. Fundamentally, almost no one coming from the Dominican Republic to the United States is coming here because they have a uh, provable skill that would benefit us and that would indicate their likely success in in our society. That's Jeff Sessions, not yet confirmed, but pretty much set to be our new Attorney General. This tape is from the Senate floor in 2006, when he was calling for tighter immigration amendments. Sessions' argument that day was that America should be restricting immigration to those who are assets in its lottery system, like the college-educated, as opposed to people who were... A net drain on the society. That's our challenge. We simply can't accept everybody that would like to come. We can't... It does, it's, it's painful to bring people um, who aren't able to uh, speak English or to effectively uh, take advantages of the opportunities our country has. And they don't advance and assimilate and become part of the great melting pot that we're so proud of as Americans. Of course, that would have ruled out Donnell, who certainly was not college educated when he came to America at four years old and most definitely was from the Dominican Republic. Ironically, he's just the kind of immigrant today that Sessions claimed we should be choosing, except that Danelle's status, it's still temporary. My name is Missy Padilla, and I live in Princeton, New Jersey. That right there is the love of Danelle's life. Well, he has two. The other one is the Yankees, and it's a love that Missy happily shares. In fact, most of their early dates were to baseball games. I was, you know, always obsessed with the Yankees. So my family always told me I would meet and marry a Yankee fanatic, and it and it happened. So <laughs> instantly, I, I I liked it. I thought his sense of humor was hysterical, and I thought, yeah, he's very smart, but he's just the typical guy, and he's really funny. And I just really, we just connected, and we got along really easily. Yeah, yeah, game. So my. <laughs> My longtime uh, girlfriend and I got married in March of 2015. Yeah, it, was the, uh, it was the awesomest wedding ever. <laughs> uh, there was much dancing. Uh, and then after we got married, we filed for an adjustment of status. Things are actually still up in the air for the couple. We had to prepare this very long application that consisted of basically a 
12 pages of letters, followed by 90 pages of supporting documentation to show that my wife and my U.S. citizen mom would be ad adversely and seriously affected by my being denied this. So that is where things presently stand. Ha 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 ha. to this day much uncertainty in Donnell's life because of his particular, but not uncommon, immigration status. Before I left his office and before he returned to a full day of lectures and research about ancient Rome, I asked him about this narrative that's so easily placed on his life, if you don't look closely. You know, the one about grit and determination and making it against the odds. Well, he was quick to point out that there's another big element too, luck. I am acutely conscious of how much of that singularity has had a lot to do with just luck. I mean, I, I've, yes, I've had training, I've, I've done well, um, but at, at many of these junctures, not only was it not guaranteed that things would work out in the ways that they did, mm -hmm. but it was also statistically unlikely that right. they would work out. I mean, I, I was repeatedly reminded of this. I mean, uh, what were the odds of my getting a waiver of inadmissibility to reenter? Pretty low to begin with. What were the odds of my uh, being allowed to adjust status from an H-1B visa to a student visa that would enable me to pursue my doctorate at Stanford? Mm. Very low. At the same time, while his rare combination of talent and work and luck opened up some amazing doors for which he's exceptionally grateful. I have uh, always felt myself to be in a precarious position, mm -hmm. uh, even though I now notionally have status. Uh, this is partly to do with the fact that all the statuses I have had have been temporary ones mm -hmm. uh, that are subject to uh, being provoked uh, by the by USCIS at any time. Um, but more importantly, this, this sense of precarity uh, is rooted uh, in my awareness of how this system works uh, to um, leave reminders uh, to those uh, who are snared by it uh, of how uh, they are not fully welcome as members of the US civic mm -hmm. community and how because of their uh, country of origin, circumstances of initial migration, uh, they are not to think of themselves as being full-fledged citizens in any sense of the word. And what can you do about this? So my, my, my approach to this has been to resist this to the extent that I can. Uh, and to say that I am a full-fledged member uh, of these many different communities. But this is a hard thing to keep up. It is obvious to me at this point uh, that my instability uh, of status has shut the door on some opportunities, uh, yeah. has made other opportunities very difficult to attain, um, and has accompanied me as this form of psychic baggage that never quite leaves me, that I could never quite shed, uh, yeah. no matter what. Danelle makes me wonder if maybe the American dream, or at least citizenship, is something closer to a dice roll than something we can earn. Or maybe it's a deliberately rare gift that's about to be placed even further out of reach in the coming years. One can always, with the benefit of hindsight, say, ah, see, this person became someone. Uh, who does things and contributes her, uh, to his or her community, and, and we should value that. But if, of course, uh, you, you had met me when I was a kid in the shelter system, you wouldn't have known any of this. You wouldn't have known that I, I, I could become this, or that given the right opportunities, I might make something out of my life. 
And so what I would ask in the end is for everyone to extend that consideration to people who are currently uh, being immiserated by the system, right? You don't know uh, what they can do until you give them a chance to do this. And this immigration system is not giving them a chance to do this at all. Maeve in America is a joint production of Pretty Good Friends and First Look Media. This episode was produced by Stephanie Tam, with help from myself, Maeve Higgins, and Shana Feinberg, Julie Smith-Clem, Erica Romero, Matt Chills, Lital Malad, and Pat Masidi-Miller, who wrote our theme music. This show was engineered by Cameron Drews and Chris Keane, with music by Sending Letters to the Sea. Huge thanks to Sadia McConville, as well as everybody at Define American, for their help with this episode. And now you, won't you please rate and review this show on iTunes so that other super cool people can find it? Check out our Instagram, Facebook and Twitter at Maven America. Okay, that's it. Thank you so much for listening. Why did you make me say those mean things to people, Maeve? It is not fair of you just because you are beautiful and smart.